0: We ended last week with respect to the gifts of the Holy Spirit lesson, and we really were getting into these extraordinary gifts. I didn't have time to really get into the uh, the nine different ones that are mentioned. So that's where I really wanted to concentrate and focus on at the outset of this lesson this morning, uh, so that we can at least have a, a survey of these. I'm not going to dive into these individually. It take You could probably spend a whole quarter just on these different gifts and, and what they could mean or where they might be used in the New Testament. Uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into the, a deep study of these. And quite honestly, some of these we don't have a lot of information on anyways. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 may be one of the only sole references that we have with respect to uh, the spirits, uh, the spiritual gifts that are enumerated there by Paul. But look with me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you're going to see extraordinary gifts that are kind of laid out by Paul there to the first century church. And of course, in some of our discussions last week, we, we talked about the idea of these spiritual gifts and the fact that um, spiritual gifts by the, the church there at Corinth are something that They struggled with. It's very obvious in Paul's writings that they were struggling with the concept and the use uh, and the uh, ability, the purposes maybe behind the spiritual gifts that we see uh, given to uh, Christians in the first century church. And so you see here, of course, in chapter 12, it begins there, of course, now concerning the spiritual gifts. um, Brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you, uh, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by the mute idols, however you were led uh, therefore I make known to you that one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse." No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. They're starting in verse 4. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good... Uh, verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Of course, you see there in verse 12, I think something, 12 and 13, really kind of goes to the point of the matter with regard to the use of spiritual gifts. He says, "...but uh, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit." And so the idea of unity in the Spirit is conveyed by Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it, but in the midst of this talk of unity, of being one mind and one body, uh, being part of the one Spirit and one God, the one Lord Jesus Christ, kind of echoes what we read over in Ephesians chapter 4, doesn't it? The idea of all these ones here. As he talks to the Corinthians, he lists out several different things uh, and calls them these spiritual gifts. And so really quickly, I just want to look at them and uh, just kind of outline these for you tell you briefly what I can about them, but I want to move on, I think, as we look at uh, the rest of this lesson and move on into the next lesson. Uh, But you see here there are nine different spiritual gifts enumerated in the passage here by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we've already talked about the different measures of the Spirit. I don't want to get into that necessarily uh, anymore today. But just remember and reflect back in your mind the idea of the different measures of the Spirit that the the Word indicates there have been given in the past, and more than likely uh, we are given a different measure today than maybe the apostles were on the, the day of Pentecost. So keep that in your mind as well. But the spiritual gifts that Paul enumerates to the Corinthians here include these. Number one, wisdom. Uh, this would be some type of a, an ability or a power to make wise decisions for the governing of the church. Uh, what exactly was it? I can't tell you necessarily, except the idea of it's wisdom. We know what wisdom is the application of knowledge and the making of decisions and choices. It reminds me, Terry, of Acts chapter 15 when you had the apostles gathered together there trying to deal with a pretty big problem of the early church the idea of circumcision and whether or not it was required for Gentiles to undergo circumcision to be pretty much become Jewish proselytes before they become a Christian. And so you see that problem in Acts chapter 15, and that problem was solved by the, the apostles and the other leaders and the elders of the church gathering together and making a wise choice. And so I think the idea of wisdom could be applied there. We're not told in Scripture that they were giving the ability or the miraculous spiritual gift of wisdom. But to me, in my mind, that's what I think of. Why? Because they didn't have experience in these matters before. This was new. And this was something that had to be understood. And you look at as uh, James speaks up, the brother of the Lord there in Acts chapter 15. He's not an apostle, but he's one who's deferred to with wisdom, And he's one that maybe just has that knowledge and he's able to apply it. Maybe miraculously, maybe not. But I think that kind of a mindset obviously is needed in the early church because you have such new Christians who may not have that experience in the Scriptures. There weren't the Scriptures with regard to the New Testament practice even in play at that point when the New Testament church applied. And so you've got the wisdom, maybe, of the Old Testament scriptures, but not necessarily the New Testament scriptures. So you would have had to have need, had a need, you had a need for the application of knowledge in the choosing and the discussions of things in the Lord's church and as they apply to those things. Maybe called the spiritual gift of wisdom. You see, the second one, of course, enumerated there is the idea of knowledge. Uh, this would be the information regarding Christ or possibly prophecy. Of course, that overlaps later with regard to prophecy, the gift. You know, maybe the knowledge of Old Testament scriptures. Maybe you had, it. well, you did. You had a lot of New Testament churches being established by Paul and the other apostles as they went around t- teaching and preaching the Word of God. You had these converts. Well, at that point in time, there was not a, an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures even by all individuals that were apart. So the idea of having a spiritual gift of wisdom as well as coupled with that spiritual gift maybe of knowledge of someone being able to have the ability to know things that they may not have known before and that would have been a miraculous knowledge Uh, There is a scene in the Scriptures. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, Is in that next chapter that talks about the greatness of love over all the gifts. Uh, There, verse 2 says, If I have to get the prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith uh, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The the illusion there is the idea of having all this knowledge. Well, how did they have this knowledge? Some maybe had this knowledge from learning it. Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the foremost Jewish scholars of all time. But you know, the, the New Testament church in Troas or the New Testament church in Ephesus may not have had scholars or those who studied at the feet of scholars. So there would be a need there for someone to have the knowledge of what scriptures had, uh, the information that was there revealed by God, uh, because in essence, they didn't have the Lord's uh, word at that point in time yet. They didn't have the written record as we do today. So the spiritual uh, gift of knowledge would have been important and necessary. The gift of faith. This is what I I would argue, this would not be the ordinary faith that we read about in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Why else would it be coupled here as a special gift by Paul and kind of singled out? This was more than likely the idea of a greater faith that was able to do somewhat of miraculous things. Think back to Jesus as he talked to his apostles and, or his disciples when he sent them out. And there were some times whenever they weren't able to do sp- certain gifts. And at that time, Jesus questioned their faith. And so the idea here is, is that there may have been a spiritual gift of this incredible amount of faith that would have allowed someone to be able to do much, much more uh, in this powerful faith, accomplishing type of great things. And I just read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, the idea of having all this knowledge, having this faith so as to move mountains. And now that could be an illusory uh, phrase there. It also could be somewhat of a very uh, real phrase concept of the idea that, that faith moved mountains uh, was some type of a special faith. We don't know definitively, nor am I going to preach it definitively, uh, but I, I think it's important to understand that it is called out here as somewhat of a spiritual gift, and because of that, I think it's important to understand. The idea of healings, we understand that. Uh, the spiritual gift of being able to bring about healings would be able to bring about the, the power to cure instantly, and again, it's important to note that there's no example whatsoever of a spiritual gift failing, whenever you try to heal somebody. Uh, I think that's a good reason and a good argument against those faith healers that we have maybe in today's world that try to say that they are able to heal, but someone comes forward, they're not able to heal, and they try to blame you because of your faith. Well, that's not what—that's not the way it works. That's not... It's not the examples we have in the the, the Bible about healing. Healing was brought about so as to prove and to uh, show the purpose of God, to prove and underscore His power, His authority in those things, there was never going to be a failure because God always wanted His power to be proven. And that became the evidence for people to see. So this this idea of a a spiritual gift of healing uh, is enumerated here by Paul. And we see it multiple times in the New Testament uh, those having the ability to heal uh, individuals of uh, physical ailments. Uh, you see the idea of miracles also here listed. Miracles, of course, would be similar to those things which would be supernatural to uh, suspend the natural law, so to speak. Uh, we also we commonly call healings miracles, which I guess in some respect they are. Here, Paul seems to delineate between the two, and I think the delineation would be that the miracles would be the, the suspension of natural law that God has placed into effect. The, the weather the uh, uh, water, the ability to, um, to affect those things naturally, those elements that God has placed into effect. And there's a couple of scriptures there for you to look at if you want to look further. Uh, prophecy, the spiritual gift of prophecy is a special power to speak for God. It's not necessarily revealing the future as we would normally think of as being prophets, but the scripture here in this word indicating this gift of prophecy is the idea of, of revelation of God, and the idea of of the individual being able to uh, have this gift to be able to speak on God's behalf, uh, when other you know to have that respect and that authority because they were speaking on on God's behalf. And again, First uh, Corinthians thirteen two alludes to that. The idea of gift of prophecy. Uh, there and the idea of speaking for God is is listed as being a, an important part of the early church, which makes sense when you don't have the revealed word in written form, right? You'd want to have God's word revealed to you in some way. This idea of prophecy really uh, kind of goes hand in hand with regard to our concept that we commonly call inspiration, and so the inspiration of the apostles, of course was the prophecy of God given to uh, the apostles or the other writers of the New Testament so that they would be able to then transpose it down into written form for our edification and purposes in the future. But prophecy was literally the speaking on behalf of God. Uh, Prophets of the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God, pronounced judgments. They also would predict future events in order to uh, possibly confirm the authority and the, the presence of God as being part of that prophecy. But prophecy has always been the speaking on behalf of God. Uh, Discernment is the uh, next one there. Discernment and the idea of spiritual discernment would be the idea of detecting, probably more than likely detecting false teachers and or other heresies that may arise in the local churches. And the idea of spiritual, having the need for a spiritual gift, again, here points out the fact they didn't have anything to compare it to, right? Today, if someone gets up and preaches a sermon, Miss Nell can get her Bible out and be able to see whether or not what that person's speaking is true or not. And be able to nudge and say, hey, Tom, this ain't right here, you know, right? Here's the written word, this is what God says right here. Uh, and so you see that ability that we have today to compare and to be able to discern whether or not something being taught is true or not true. Well, they didn't have that in the first century church. So the idea that Paul conveys here to the Corinthian church is they had a special gift of discernment because there were going to be individuals there who would be able to speak up and say, that's not true. That's not correct. And when you couple that with other spiritual gifts, you're able to see the unification there of, of teaching against those things which were false teaching in the early church because they had these special gifts uh, there. We see the gift of tongues. We we've, we've see that usually underscored with regard to the spiritual gifts, right? That's usually what people like to call out. Our Pentecostal friends uh, usually kind of hinge their uh, credibility upon the speaking of tongues. And I've heard multiple things as I've studied. I've, I've done some Googling on this, which is very interesting to see uh, some of the assertions made with regard to speaking in tongues. Do it sometimes. See what YouTube has with regard to videos of speaking in tongues. It's very interesting. But you see, People rely and kind of cru- put the crux of their faith on the concept of speaking in tongues. And that when they have the, the Holy Spirit, when they, they have that come upon them, they speak in tongues. Well, uh, I understand why they're trying to argue that. And, and unfortunately, I think that their, their faith is a little misplaced with regard to the lack of knowledge. But we associate gifts of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. Well, why? Well, we know first day of Pentecost there, not first day, well... The day of Pentecost, there, that the, 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 wasn't the first Pentecost, by the way. Um, the, the day of Pentecost, we see the apostles speaking in tongues. And so we see that as being something as what, somewhat of a stamp of approval of being uh, given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we see that as being a very important point with regard to it. But quite literally, the, the ability here or the gift of the Holy Spirit Uh, dealing with speaking in tongues was the ability to be able to speak in a foreign language without having studied it. And so that's why it becomes something of a miraculous or something of a spiritual gift because it's not anything that would be expected. Uh, When those 12 apostles stood up there and they spoke in tongues so that all those different nations could understand them, the apostles had not studied those other tongues. That's why it became such an amazement to them. And so it became a proof and an evidence of the authority of God going through the apostles at that point in time because they were able to speak in a tongue for individuals to be able to hear uh, the Word of God being spoken in their native tongue uh, at that point in time. There's other instances, and we see in the New Testament with regard to speaking in tongues besides Acts chapter 2. You see over in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, one of the promises that we have there with regard to becoming Christians is that the people are told that they would be able to speak in tongues. I don't want to talk about snake handling. If I can avoid it with regard to Mark 16, we can have that individual conversation later. Uh, but uh, the, the idea there that Mark conveys to the people there is that uh, that the people, uh, the Christians, would be able to speak in tongues. And you see it also reiterated in 1 Corinthians 12. We talked about that already there. But if you look over in chapter 12, verse 28, there's an idea there that, that Paul further talks about this idea of speaking in tongues. And the reason is, It's because the speaking in tongues somewhat got elevated as being a very important kind of a stature of of hierarchy of of gifts. And if you read all of chapter 12, which I know we kind of stopped there after we read that that part there in verse 13. uh, But if you read the remaining part of chapter 12, you're going to see there a discussion by Paul with regard to the hierarchy of gifts because people were trying to elevate other members of the local congregation as being more important than others because of what gift that they had. And of course you could see where that could pose and present a lot of problems for the local congregation. That really kind of dispels... Uh, the unity that should be there in existence in the local congregation. And you really see when you read verse chapter 12 in its entirety, the reason why Paul wants to confront these problems right there at the beginning of the chapter, uh, talking about spiritual gifts and the fact that spiritual gifts should bring about unity, not disrupt the unity. And the latter part there chapter 12, he talks about uh, the speaking in tongues there. In verse 28 says, God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, uh, helps, administrations, very Kinds of tongues. You kind of see a a laying out there of um, almost a hierarchy of gifts, even by Paul. But Paul is trying to tell them here that even though God has set apart these things, and says verse 29 all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? Are, Are all not workers of miracles, are they? All don't have the gifts of healings, do they? All don't speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Verse 31, which leads right into chapter 13, which we love to read. And we read yesterday at Philip's wedding uh, with regard to love. But the whole point and the crux of the matter of chapter 12 there is summed up with regard to 30. But earnestly desire the greatest gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way leading right there into verse 13, love. And so the idea there is that you can seek these gifts, that's fine. And tongues may be perceived as being important, and in fact, they are important uh, because it helps convey the Word of God. But what it says there, and Paul is trying to tell the brethren, it, it doesn't matter what gift you might have, this spiritual gift. You need to be earnestly seeking love of the brethren over everything because the spiritual gifts matter, yes, because they were needed. They were necessary. They were important in the early church. But the unity and the bond of unity and the love that you would have toward one another was even much more important in the long run. So the spiritual gift here of tongues, of course, was the ability to, to speak in a foreign language. And it couples with the last one that's enumerated there in chapter 12, the idea of interpretation. In fact, if you go keep reading through Corinthians, first and even 2 Corinthians, the idea of interpretation there is important as well. Speaking in tongues, by the way, had to be a known tongue. Okay, I want to make that point too. Why? Why do we know that? Because it had to be also be interpreted. So it can't just be gibberish that someone makes up. But it has to be something that someone can hear and then be able to interpret it in some cohesive manner. And so the idea here in the New Testament church is is that speaking in tongues was able to underscore the authority of God and give proof of his authority and his instruction and, and give proof that what was being spoken was in fact on his behalf. But also it had to be understood. And so in the New Testament church, and we see in Acts chapter 2, of course, the, the purpose of speaking in tongues was so that all could hear in their language, I believe. That's what you see in the passage there is that all the different people in the different nations speaking in tongues was used there to convey the message of God to all the different peoples that were there. But later on in the Lord's church, I think the argument could be made that speaking in tongues was also just an evidence of the authority of God. But you could not just speak in tongues and just let it be out there without any kind of interpretation. So also one of the spiritual gifts that God bestowed upon his people was the act of interpretation so that when people were spoken to in some type of a tongue, maybe they weren't familiar with, that could be then interpreted to them and they would then understand what was being taught, what was being spoken. It was not just left out there for people to to speculate or think. And so these spiritual gifts here, of course, are outlined by Paul. Uh, and the ideas, uh, I think, are, are, are presented that uh, these spiritual gifts are for his people to be able to convey the Word of God and be able to have those things which are important uh, and, and, and understood ultimately in the, uh, the Lord's church. Uh, and we talked real quickly about the ordinary gifts. And you think about ordinary gifts, you com- contrast the ordinary versus extraordinary. Extraordinary are all those things which uh, we normally call spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's also an idea of the ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, and the idea that the the power and the influence of the Spirit uh, would be a part of all the lives of the Christians. It was not something necessarily miraculous. But this ordinary gift is what remained uh, after the miraculous ceased. If you remember when we first started this lesson about gifts of the Holy Spirit, what we talked about is in all the different ages of mankind, in the different eras or epics or whatever you want to call them uh, of mankind, you see God using miraculous things to bring about something, but then you see the non-miraculous perpetuating those things which were miraculous. The idea of the, the miracle of creation. Taking something from nothing. God did that for us. And he, he showed these things which uh, defied our minds and continue to defy our minds today. It's, it's obviously continually a, a topic of conversation about how was something created or was there a creation creation? Is there a God uh, around us? You see that debate continuing to go on. It will go on until the end of time uh, comes about. But then you see the non-miraculous perpetuating those things which were miraculous. God set things in order, and so he allowed those things to continue in order. The idea of the incarnate uh, Christ and the beginning of what we call the Christian age. You see those things occurring and miraculously speaking. You see his, his, uh, the idea that, that Christ came from heaven and, and became flesh, John 1.14. He dwelt among men. And so you see that idea of a miraculous thing or, or something that was extraordinary that occurred. And the idea of the beginning of Christ's ministry. You have all these different miracles that were performed to prove what was there and who God is and what he demanded among us. But then you see that there was non-miraculous things put into place and put into order to perpetuate those things which were established by God miraculously. And uh, you see that occurring throughout all time. Well, that's the same thing that occurs even today. And the idea that we have the non-miraculous that remains after the miraculous has ceased and then, of course, this will closely tie into our next topic of study, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the idea there is that we are given this gift uh, that may be a non-extraordinary and there thus would be ordinary. Now, I, would, I hate to call anything associated with God or the Spirit ordinary. You know, that kind of bothers me a little bit, Earl, saying we just have the ordinary, you know, gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that kind of bothers me. Because nothing about the spirit is ever going to be ordinary. Nothing about God is ever ordinary. But you see in Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight, the the principle. And the proof text that kind of talks about the idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit being conveyed to all mankind there, of course, uh, really 38 and 39. But 38, of course, is repent and be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, don't forget this verse. We like verse 38, and and rightfully so. It's a great verse. It gives us that pecking order, that importance of repent and be baptized. Then you got permission of sins, right? you got to have those things in order. Be able to have remission of sins. But the, verse 39 really becomes more applicable for our study here because after the forgiveness of sins, then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it says there in verse 39 this gift, for this promise, is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And so you cannot leave verse 39 out when you deal with the Holy Spirit. You can leave it out with regard to what's necessary for salvation. That's fine because ultimately, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily apply to those things which are required. But the promise which has been given in verse 38, the idea of the remission of sins and the ability to have the Holy Spirit, that gift of the Holy Spirit has been conveyed to all who are afar off, all those which the Lord Jesus calls unto himself. You read the book of Acts and you you, you hear the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord is reiterated there by Lucas. He chronicles the stories of conversion and the idea that God calls each of us to Him. He wants us to repent. He wants us to become baptized uh, so that we will have the washing away of our sins and we will be called unto Him. So all of those who are called unto God, verse 39 says, will be able to obtain the promises which Peter himself gave on the day of Pentecost. That's where we see the connection with regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That may be non-miraculous. That may be what I would call ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit because we have those same promises today to have the Spirit, but there's not the same purposes. There's not the same needs. are not, not the same circumstances that we see around us today uh, with regard to what the Spirit and why the Spirit would be an extraordinary measure. Real quickly, think about the purposes of the gifts. The purposes of the gifts are, are pretty well chronicled throughout the New Testament. And when we think about why were there gifts? Now again, this, this purpose uh, would include the extraordinary gifts of the New Testament as well as even the ordinary gift of the, of the, the, the Spirit as the uh, New Testament continued on and even that we live today. But you see, the purposes for the gifts, especially the extraordinary gifts, uh, were to spread the Word of God. They didn't have the written Word of God. So these spiritual gifts, as we've talked about, especially those nine enumerated by Paul, I'm not going to say there's not more than nine. I think those fairly well include a lot of those things. Again, we didn't talk about a handling of snakes, and that's really for another day. I, want to, I don't want to get into that discussion today. Although, side note, Paul did handle snakes, by the way, just so you know. All right, so... Uh, you see, the idea, the purpose, though, was to preach the Word, right? Because they had to have the Word. That Word came to them not in a natural form or not into some, uh, you know, we don't have, they didn't have the Word of God here like we do here with the New Testament Scriptures talking about the saving gospel of Christ. They had to be able to convey that Word and spread the Word to others so that was necessary for them to have these gifts Uh, to be able to perpetuate and spread the Word of God. Uh, The gifts were important to edify the church, to build them up. We've already talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where they had some problems with regard to unity. Well, if those gifts were used properly, guess what happens to the local church? local church is edified. The local church is built up. The local church is supported. It is strengthened by those spiritual gifts. And so that's what you see. Ephesians chapter 4 and, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. You're going to see this, this undergirding of the Lord's church by these spiritual gifts because that was needed at that time. You compare that to the same purpose, and we'll, we will in just a second, with regard to how it happens today. But you think those extraordinary gifts, how they edified and strengthened Think about the spiritual gifts, those extraordinary gifts, how they uh, confirmed the truth. We've already talked about that. Imagine someone performing a miracle in front of your eyes after they just told you you need to repent and be baptized or you're going to go to hell. And then they do a miracle in front of your eyes. They heal someone who's been lame since birth. They raise the dead. Those miracles are going to confirm that this man knew what he was talking about. We better listen to him. That's why people want it today, right? They want that power, that authority, that confirmation uh, and that uh, what they're saying uh, is in fact meaning something. And fi- unfortunately, it's, it's very un- un- not placed with regard to context and unfortunately it fails. You don't see these miracles being performed today. But the miracles at that time, these spiritual gifts, these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit were allowed to, to uh, be there for the purpose of confirming the truth. Fourth. The the purposes of the extraordinary gifts were to assist in recording the truth. Okay, you can see that used the spiritual gifts were used ultimately in the recording of the truth for us even today. The idea of the prophecy being revealed, the incorporation of the knowledge and the wisdom, the decisions that were made, all those things kind of helped perpetuate the recording of the truth as it was passed down from age to age, and ultimately it was inspired by God to be written for our taking. But they were part and partial to it and helped record the truth. And finally, fifth, you see the purpose of the gifts was to establish the saints. establish them, not just to encourage them, but to actually establish them and make sure that those things which they had were grounded and rooted in the truth. The Spirit would exhort, would sanctify the believers in holy living, If you see over in Romans chapter 8 and you see in Galatians chapter 4. The Spirit's purpose is really summed up by James over in James chapter 1 verse 4. If you want to flip there or just listen to me, but James helps us see the Spirit's ultimate work. In Christians then and even now today as well as the idea that verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that was the ultimate purpose of the Spirit to make sure that the Christians were lacking in nothing. Now today, let's compare it to today. Let's just say extraordinary gifts don't, they're not here. That's what I think the scriptures teach. Scriptures help show us that we don't have the need for extraordinary gifts. However, it's very interesting to think about the purposes of gifts still remain the same for the gift that we do have. This, if we want to call it the ordinary gift. Again, I don't think anything's ordinary about the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit with us with respect to the Word of God. Doesn't the Word of God fulfill all these purposes that we see in Scripture? Sure, it does. Sure, it does. You see the fact that the Word of God allows us to spread the Word. We're able to teach it. We're able to convey it to others because we have it written down for our understanding. The Word of God and the Spirit uh, today allows us to edify the church. It helps bring, the bring us up. It helps strengthen us. It confirms the truth. Why? Just as I said, Miss Nail can open her Bible. She can confirm whether or not what I'm teaching is right or wrong. Why? Because she's got the, the written word. She's got the Spirit's word in front of her that was inspired through all those writers. Uh, the, obviously, the recording of the truth. Does the Bible record the truth? Yes, it does. It, it has it down here for us, and it has been completed for our edification and our learning and understanding. And so the Spirit is allowed to be able to be worked, and the purpose of the Spirit maintains the same there. And of course, the, the Word of God with the Spirit uh, establishes saints even today. It makes sure that we are thoroughly equipped. It exhorts, it sanctifies us. That's what Timothy's told to do, right? And over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uh, he talked about there to go and preach the Word in season, out of season, you know, make sure that we are doing those things which God wants us to do. And so we see that uh, that Word is there able to be equipped uh, allowing us to be a ready uh, so that all the things that we do uh, will be able to be uh, firmly founded upon the Word of God and so that those things which we uh, express and those things which we are doing uh, comes from God's Word. I think I said 1 Timothy. That threw me off. But it's actually 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 2. Be, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. I think it may be on our board this week actually out here about preaching the word be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering, uh, with uh, instruction. For the time will come when they don't endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Well, so you see, the Spirit through its word and the inspired word of God that we have now today through the Spirit allows us to be sanctified, set apart, and properly instructed, exhorted to, to be part of sound doctrine and be established in those type of things. So you kind of see the parallel there, I think, with regard to how the Spirit could even work today and how He accomplishes the same purposes, maybe in somewhat different ways, because the times have changed and the need has changed. As 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10 talks about, that perfect has come, and that perfect being the Word of God, it allows us to be thoroughly equipped and ready for every good work. Josh. Yeah, I, I, I'm not necessarily going to discount that. I, I think when you look at the list of at least those nine gifts, spiritual gifts in First Corinthians 12, not every one of them would have had a tangible, physical help uh, necessarily. You'd have things such as wisdom and prophecy that would be more of a spiritual effect. I think you're right with regard to the, a lot of the miracles that we see and those things that uh, happen with those extraordinary gifts. Is that obviously, there was always a an impact or a result an effect, so to speak, on other individuals, more than likely, usually physically. Uh, There's always that. Jesus, of course, his benevolence that he had when he was on this earth cannot be, um, you know, stressed enough. The idea that he reached out to those who were in need. I mean, he himself said, I come to seek and save those which are lost, or I come to help to those who are sick, like a doctor does. You know, so he obviously saw the, the idea that, that people would be hurting. But the the spiritual aspect, I think, is even more important when you think of the spiritual uh, gifts that God has here is that, uh, that there are there is a utilization of everything to kind of go through and to funnel through to uh, go to the purpose of teaching and preaching and helping them spiritually. So all the benevolence that was done and, and even the good works that were performed with regard to the extraordinary gifts, I think that's well said, Josh, that that people were affected. And I think that's what the purpose was behind those gifts is to, uh, to help effectuate change in individuals. Sometimes that change manifested itself in physical deformities or physical things, the physical needs, but the, always the importance and stress was there that it wasn't just the physical that we were wanting to pinpoint. And God wants us to pinpoint the spiritual and to help make sure that uh, our gifts are used to help bring about not just physical change but spiritual change in lives. And, and I think you're right. There was always a change that was brought about, whether it's the establishment of them or when you heard the word that you were converted or, uh, you know, you repented, you changed uh, based upon the, uh, the gifts acting. Very good point. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, there was that instance, but you also, you also think Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think that anybody would argue that was good for them um, with regard to the striking them, of dead, uh, them down dead, um, you know, after they lied to the, you know, the spirit. The, the idea there, of course, is that there's always, an, I think, a purpose. Again, I think for the spiritual. Now, I think that you may have the, the exterior um, ability to affect people physically. Yes, that was important. Uh, but there was always a goal there to affect them, I think, of being spiritual. Uh, struck him blind that 's right. So I mean there are uses of these the spiritual gifts that that we see. But again, the the properties and the purposes always tend to be spiritual in nature, looking for those ways which Christ could confirm, could edify, that uh, God would be able to uh, use the abilities of mankind or the abilities of the apostles and his disciples that had these spiritual gifts to help bring about those things which are important. Now, I want to end this lesson, but I want to end it on on a note with regard to emphasizing why would extraordinary gifts have ceased? We've talked about them ceasing. Uh, I've already mentioned one key verse, I believe, being 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, which is the third point on this list here. But if you look, what are some reasons why these extraordinary gifts uh, would have ceased? And, and I think the scriptures teach us that these extraordinary gifts have ceased for several reasons. One, you see the governing principle in Genesis chapter 1 and, and verse 12, uh, verse 24, verse 28. Uh, the idea there, again, we've talked about that the miraculous begets the non-miraculous. And when the non-miraculous continues on those things which have been established and have brought about things. So this will be what we call the governing principle here of the fact that uh, once something has been established, it's not necessarily to perpetuate it with the the miraculous. Uh, That The the scriptures teach that the non-miraculous is able to perpetuate the miraculous as it goes on. Secondly, you think about the building metaphor that we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. The idea that the house has been built... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the finished product is present. We all have this divine truth. And when a building is complete, all the building materials are then removed, right? And so you think about it in your mind, the, the, the use of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit are very likened and akin to the idea of building materials for that house. Because those things were needed, they were necessary to bring about that house, However, once that house was completed, those building materials and those excess things are taken away. The, the, uh, the tools and all those things which were used to build that uh, house are removed from the premises because that house can then stand on its own. And so we see there the miraculous gifts were somewhat like the scaffolding used to construct the Lord's church. And once the church has reached maturity and once it brings about its creation, And its ability, there's no other uh, further need for the miraculous to exist. You see the other one, maturity metaphor, 1 Corinthians 13.10, talked about the perfect coming. When Paul said prophecies would be done away with, he didn't mean that the content of the prophecies would be done away. He simply meant the act of speaking as the Spirit gives utterance would end. It would be abolished, is the way Roy Lanier Sr. uh, stated it there. And I think that's a good way to say it, that it wasn't necessarily the prophecies were done away with, but the way and the manner in which those prophecies come to us has in fact changed. Uh, You see the transmission act, the idea that the manner in which uh, miraculous gifts were transmitted proved that it ceased. Uh, Only the apostles could bestow the miraculous ability upon others. And so when the apostles died, when that generation has ended, when those uh, that could pass along the ability to perform extraordinary gifts ceased to exist, there was no way to transmit that on any further. And so the transmission ceased. And then ultimately you see the the character of the Bible shows that miraculous gifts are no longer needed. It's able to do everything. We've already talked about it a minute ago. It's able to do everything that the miraculous did. So there's no need for that to occur anymore. There's no need for dual service or conflicting service possibly or people to be able to make some type of arguments that, hey, he's got the Spirit, so we need to believe what he's got versus what the written word has to say in there. God would not create that duality uh, with regard to our faith existence. We didn't get into indwelling this week, but we will next week. We will talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we conclude our series this quarter. Thank you guys so much for your attention this morning.